Technology has seemingly penetrated all domains of our society. The past decade has been characterized by the outsized impacts of social media, autonomous cars, cryptocurrencies, text and image generators, and various tech startups. Artificial intelligence is the binding element, or rather the common clue between the innovations in the vast majority of cases. While the definition of intelligence is still largely obfuscated, it is, undoubtedly, the most disruptive technological innovation of the 21st century. Artificial intelligence allows us to build a richer, more complex society, but it is failing to support the governance systems that the more complex world requires. In other words, tools based on artificial intelligence are actively rearranging contemporary society without being subjected to the necessary safeguards to keep such artifacts in check. In recent years, scientists and regulators worldwide have begun discussing and investigating the impacts of bias in artificial intelligence. How do culture, gender, ideological presuppositions and values influence the design and development of AI-based systems? To discuss this and much more, we have invited two leading US scientists in the field of AI bias, Ryo Schwartz and Chinasati Okolo. In the first segment of the podcast, you will hear Riva introduce the issue of AI bias and explain the individual elements of the AI production pipeline, while with Chinasa, we zoom in and discuss the divide between the global north and south with regard to AI development. Having said that, enjoy the show. If I were to describe the past few years of technology development in one word, I would probably go with artificial intelligence. The increasing number of data points available has fueled growth of the AI industry. As a matter of fact, the industry grows annually by 20 to 30 percent. With the increasing prominence of AI, however, comes the societal responsibility to properly investigate and assess the very nature of these systems. In other words, we have to start asking questions like, are they going to sow distrust in technology or rather enhance the techno-scientific outlooks for mankind's future? More importantly, what impacts are these emerging socio-technical artifacts going to have on, for example, underrepresented populations? To answer these questions and talk about AI bias, we've invited the leading research scientist, Riva Schwartz. She's currently working at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, where she serves as a principal investigator on bias in artificial intelligence for the Institute's Trustworthy and Responsible AI program. Her research focuses on organizational practices and the role of expertise and expert judgment in socio-technical systems. Hi, Riva, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's start with your recent publication. Uh, according to NIST uh, publication, uh, towards a standard for identifying and managing bias in artificial intelligence, AI is defined uh, as a large class of software-based system that receives signals from the environment and take actions that affect that environment by generating outputs such as content, predictions, recommendations, classification, or decisions influencing the environment they interact with. In the popular discourse, however, uh, we only barely encounter the term machine learning, even though it is by far the most popular field of study devoted to building learning methods. Could you please elaborate on the connection between artificial intelligence and machine learning? How does the latter inform the intelligence element of the former? Yeah, um, so there are obviously many, many definitions for both artificial intelligence and machine learning. It's important to know they are not synonymous, um, and they are also both in their own way kind of packed with marketing perspectives. Um, and I think the use of the terms often goes beyond what the terms originally meant or were intended to mean. So I don't know if machine learning isn't used as often as AI, but um, certainly it could be argued that machine learning has been kind of repackaged as AI. And it might be because AI uh, sounds more sciencey or more mysterious, and you know it's been around longer. But as an, I'm a social scientist, so as a non-computational scientist, I refer people to all the many long-form descriptions and definitions about it, ML. But basically, it's you know it's a subset of artificial intelligence. 
whereby a computer model is trained to learn on its own rather than via direct compute, uh, programming or computing. Our interest in that document was to kind of demystify the computational aspects of AI and ML and place systems within their societal constructs because that's how and where AI systems work. They don't operate in a vacuum. And uh, traditional software also doesn't operate in a vacuum, but since AI-based systems or machine learning uh, systems learn from the data, we need a much broader consideration of what they are in fact learning about our society and how society influences AI models, how the use of AI impacts society. So that's a socio-technical challenge, and these factors are not really included in current standard um, perspectives and approaches to AI ML. Uh, interventions right now are almost exclusively computational. And to continue the, the socio-technical line of inquiry, I really like what you do and in your what you also argue for in your publication, because that's something what we've been interested in as well. And you've decided to adopt the socio-technical approach um, to the study of AI bias. So could you elaborate on it? Could you kind of explain it to a person who has no idea what socio-technical means? And how is this connected to, to techno-solutionism, sort of? And then there is this add-up question of, would you consider yourself a techno-determinist or socio-constructivist? Meaning, do you believe that you know technology influences the way we, we behave? It shapes our experience of the world? Or rather, it is our beliefs and values and ideas that shape the technology? Great, great question, um, and I spend so much of my time trying to um, educate people about what socio-technical means. Sometimes it's really easy for people to grasp, and sometimes it's really hard, depending on the background. Um, so I just mentioned, and you know, the kind of the current perspective on AI and ML is a very narrow perspective of kind of computational interventions for risks that are really focused on the pipeline, so the data, the model, the algorithmic processes. But AI, of course, is built within society, not the other way around. Society doesn't exist in the model, the model exists in society. So AI systems, whether they're algorithmic search or AI-based decision-making, generative AI, recommender systems, they're all influenced by and impact society and human social behavior. These interactions are two-way, but a computational, rather that narrow perspective, is only able to approach the challenge one way. Um, so data sets change, models adapt, and most of the time those changes are based on external factors that are contextual in nature, not computational in nature. Um, a socio-technical approach, um, or what it does is recognize that reality, so it's really influences and impacts, um, and enables a focus on two really important things, the context in which the system's deployed and the system impacts and harms. So harms to individuals, harms to groups, communities, society, and even the environment. So at least within the field of trustworthy and responsible AI, the challenge is understanding context and designing for impacts and harms within that context. So what, what tends to happen though is that even when, we, even when uh, people can perceive and understand systems as related to their contexts and impacts, um, so they can grasp a socio-technical perspective, it's very difficult right now to change our approaches to be socio-technical. We tend to default to computational approaches, um, which are simply insufficient. So there's a number of, you know, kind of hypotheses for why that happens. One reason we describe, and this gets at the techno-solutionism piece is, and we, just, we describe this in um, our document on bias, is the McNamara fallacy, which is uh, the idea that numerical or quantitative information 
is more valuable and more objective than other forms of information, both of those are actually false. And this perspective kind of gets transferred to technology. So that mathematical kind of based bias has been around for a really long time. And now it's been transferred to technology. And people tend to trust tech more than humans until the tech either doesn't work, doesn't work well, or stops working well. And then there are enough people who are negatively impacted. And then we see a swing the other way, which is kind of where we're at. I'm a linguist, and I think I tend to perceive speech to be behavioral in nature. So I think tech is a result of our social connections. But it does, I think it goes, it goes the direction of humans to technology. But, but, you know, you can't, you can't like disentangle that, I think, so easily. I, you know, I see in a lot of the perceptions about large language models, or the given app of the day, there seems to be this perspective that the direction is one way that language models get pushed out to society, and then everybody uses it, it's static. But of course, it's two ways. As humans interact online, for example, they adapt their language, and online language changes, so on and so forth. This is how language has always happened. These are human driven, and therefore social and dynamic systems. I wonder, how would you explain AI bias to an ordinary person? I mean, just the basic definition, which is, I'm sure not that basic, what does it all include? Yeah, so bias is a hot topic. But, you know, of course, it isn't a new thing. And it isn't rare. I think in a way, sometimes I try and describe bias as a little bit like viruses, and that they are kind of all around us. But not every virus gets us sick. So our concern isn't really whether a given system is biased, because it is, it's definitely biased. It's whether the system is caught, whether those biases within the system are causing harm or negative impact. And if so, who is it harming? And under what conditions is that harm likely to happen? And once we get that information, we can adapt our approaches to consider which of the biases are relevant, and which contexts to design for. And then I would just take a line from our NIST document, which is kind of that AI bias is not just about data, or the representativeness of data and how that impacts the model. Those kind of statistical biases, such as sampling bias, are just one part of the challenge. Lurking underneath that category of bias are two other categories. We refer to these in the document as systemic bias and human cognitive bias. Putting things into mathematical models, this gets back to techno-solutionism and McNamara fallacy, putting things into math and algorithmic approaches and technology processes don't actually make those biases go away or make our decisions more objective. What it does do is kind of obfuscate bias and detach them from their context. So those benefits of AI, where we can now quickly sort things and make decisions, come with these really difficult problems and downsides. So it's not new or surprising that these biases are applicable to AI-based systems, but it appears to be kind of the right time because it's particularly newsworthy. Systemic biases are implicit and result, because we talk about systemic bias, what does that mean? It's basically a result of how institutional practices or societal norms can cause certain social groups to be advantaged or favored over other groups. So examples here would be like systemic sexism, systemic racism. 
And a really basic example here is this kind of rather old fashioned idea of um, men as breadwinners and women as caregivers. This idea can get captured in computational processes such as word embeddings. And then we get a scenario where in online search, uh, photos of women are more likely to be associated with nurses and photos of men are more likely to be associated with doctors. So um, uh, human cognitive biases are an issue across the entire AI life cycle. It is, not, um, you know, it is not just the person at the end reading the model output. There are humans across the entire AI life cycle from you know, uh, the decisions uh, re related to problem formulation, data set selection, the objective function, et cetera, what you're optimizing on. And then, of course, the person at the end does, is making a decision, and, and that's why you know, so much attention is on those people. So how those particular humans are interpreting output, interacting with the system, um, and making some kind of uh, decision, going back to this example, so such as you know, should the woman get the job or should the man get the job? Or should it be a disabled person or, or an able person? Do an older person versus younger person? It's really complicated by all of these other uh, systemic biases upstream. And so I just want to take, so we, we talked at the, the, the top about AI versus ML, and I just want to say like, we tend, we prefer the uh, use of the term AI bias versus algorithmic bias, because algorithmic bias in, in a way kind of suggests that the source of the bias comes only from the algorithm, which is just incomplete. And to follow a little bit up on that, um, AI development, machine learning especially, uh, is extremely dependent on the quality of the training datasets. In some instances, such as uh, the U.S. crime statistic, the datasets are corrupted by default as a result of flow data collection techniques and institutional or cultural societal bias. Uh, for example, the deployment of Freepol or Compass, both AI systems uh, train on flow data for the perpetuous systematic discrimination of people of color. Is it possible to escape this self-fulfilling prophecy? And uh, if so, how? Uh, um, <laughs> Yes, I, I, don't, I, I don't think it's possible, unfortunately, to get rid of all these things because they are prevalent in our society and in human processes, of course. Um, the, problem, the challenge with AI is that it's now, uh, we've now um, automated so many of these things and made a lot of those decisions implicit, so they are hard to get rid of. Um, uh, so uh, measurement <laughs> is really important here to us at NIST. Um, we have an AI risk, man risk management framework, which is designed to um, help organizations get better at trustworthy, uh, at developing trustworthy systems. And validity and reliability are two of the um, of the uh, characteristics that we uh, we describe that that can help organizations get better at that. So um, when systems are more valid. Um, when they are empirically tested and um, and the constructs that uh, people use. So, um, for example, uh, one of the problems with some of these processes is that, um, well, first of all, the act of um, uh, making these concepts mathematical gets rid of some of this context. And now we've created things like proxies such as uh, criminality and hireability, which are not actually observable. So. Um, so measurement approaches, uh, good old standard <laughs> measurement approaches and validation can help us uh, not uh, operationalize those kinds of proxies unless they have actually been validated. Um, same with uh, selecting the objective function. Um, that there's, a, there's a lot of um, 
discussion about how the objective function is uh, how systems are mechanized and calibrated to what actually matters. So maximizing or minimizing what you want to get. So uh, some would say that that objective function is what needs to be adapted and to take values into consideration and not incentivize or optimize something that's not reflective of, of our societal values. So we have this on one hand, a measurement, you know, a very technocratic approach of um, measuring things and making sure they're valid and reliable. And then we also have all the values stuff, which is the fairness and accountability and transparency um, and interpretability and explainability. From a really high up level, you know, as when we put humans and impact at the center, when we perceive these things as socio-technical systems, how we think about AI um, enables us to kind of shift our perspectives about what to measure. This perfectly translates into into the next theme I would like to open up, which is you know all about values, and we we talk here mm -hmm. about measurements and you know for example, why do we care so much about validity? It's this this value embedded in our own system of understanding the very nature that we perceive. Do we think well validity is something we should strive forward, um, to mm -hmm. achieve? And so the whole development of of these systems they are embedded in some reality and and this reality for the ai unfortunately is pretty much embedded in the uh, global norms and then there are some values tied to who develops these things and so so the question is um what values do you see embedded within the um, ai industry um or what values should we strive to attend there is this you know um notion in the past few years at least it's been going on for the past few years um, and that's the um, idea of public values embedded in technology. And what can we do to, or what can we do to attain them, or how do we embed them within the systems which are very technical now? Yeah, yeah. And so that's a lot of what um, our work on the AI risk management framework kind of tries to operationalize. So we we um, define seven trustworthy characteristics. Um, as I mentioned, validity and reliability one of them, but so is uh, uh, fairness. Uh, so is uh, accountability and transparency, interpretability and explainability, safety, security, um, systems that are, but, but underneath its core, you know, uh, if systems don't work, um, so there's a lot of discussion, you know, this assumption that uh, systems work <laughs> is always true, right? They, they may just not function or they may just uh, lead to um, inaccurate outcomes, which is how you get, you know, people who are arrested wrongly. So it's not just that the system's biased, it's also not, it's not performing well. The other problem with uh, invalid systems is that they are uh, uh, amenable to um, uh, kind of pseudoscientific um, approaches, which is, of course, an irresponsible practice and, and does not align with our values. So, you know, there's um, recent uh, research uh, about about text-to-image generators that seem completely incapable of producing images that don't amplify systemic biases or stereotypes or discriminatory uh, perspectives. There's a recent paper um, by researchers from Stanford, Columbia, uh, Bocconi University, and, and University of Washington that found that generators such as Stable Diffusion and Dolly are, in their, in, in their tests, were unable to produce content that isn't harmful, even when carefully prompted to produce an image that's more diverse. So um, really, really troublesome. Um, and uh, so it, it, they tend to, and in their words, um, these systems perpetuate societal notions of prestige and whiteness rather than merely amplifying existing demographic balances. So I think that's this other computational perspective is this idea that um, 
if all we have, all we, all we should worry about is demographic balance, um, the systems will be fine uh, and align with values. But that's obviously untrue because <laughs> we have perfectly balanced systems or perfectly balanced data sets that contribute to um, uh, unfair outcomes. So. So speaking of data sets, um, you mentioned that we cannot um, limit ourselves to one thing. And we talked here, or you just briefly mentioned um, the outputs of, of um, stable diffusion or DALI, which is, you know, the, the final stage, the deployment. You, you do a prompt and um, it, it gives you something. But what about um, the assumptions that shape the whole pipeline of things? So we start data collection, then we go to um, the cleaning of data, the sort of processing, training, labeling, and so on and so on. And so the question is, um, how do these assumptions influence the individual stages of the AI development cycle? So maybe you can provide us with a few examples on, for example, how data labeling is influenced by human bias. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, I'm going to uh, spend a, a minute talking about the AI risk management framework because public values, um, you know, get are, are are kind of sitting behind all of this, right? Um, ensuring that you know we're focused on impact so in the ai rmf we have four we call we call them in our in our parlance uh functions and they're designed to help organizations operationalize these things as i mentioned um so uh that can't really happen none of this can happen without strong organizational governance and commitment to values and buy-ins within, within the organization clear communication of values um along with clear lines of accountability um uh, so we start with a function we call mapping, which gives organizations the opportunity to really carry out an impact assessment and think about things like how we're going to label data, how we're going to bring in as much context as possible about the system before we build it, um, the risks associated that, that could impact um, individuals, and, and uh, you know, the context in which it will be deployed and how it could create negative impacts. So a lot of this and by the way, positive impacts as well. Um, but you know, a lot of this is kind of anticipating um, anticipating performance, which requires uh, a very, very different set of expertise at, or, or skills at, in, in the organization. So identifying contextual constraints, norms, values, the objective function, the fact the system should be made at all. Um, uh, these are what are the trustworthy characteristics um, how do you label the data? How do you identify the right proxies? How do you um, make sure that your systems are valid? This is all the kind of stuff that happens at the mapping stage. And again, um, as I you know, as I mentioned, that uh, one different way to, to one key uh, factor here is the team and the set of perspectives internally has to know about context and societal norms and values. Because if you're just data labeling, if you're just labeling data based on uh, some uh, if, and you might not even have ground truth, but like some uh, baseline of ground truth that was not contextually informed um, or, or connected to values, um, then I think we're missing uh, an opportunity to measure those risks. There is for sure this question of uh, AI responsibility, which comes from its creation and how it, how, how it goes and how it runs. And to produce it, you recommend the so-called uh, TIV approach, which um, includes transparency data sets uh, and tests, evaluation, validation, and verification. 
Uh, validation based on uh, subject matter experts should, insofar as it is feasible, reuse the AI bias and ensure that the system is not used uh, in unintended ways. What does approach, uh, however, not perpetuate certain prejudices uh, and cultures that the scientific or expert community may have towards the topic at hand? Yeah, I mean, great point, um, because no matter what the group is, um, they bring their uh, perspectives and values uh, implicitly. Um, and that's a huge factor, right, is how do you make these kind of implicit assumptions explicit as much as you possibly can. Um, but uh, validation approaches, uh, it, it, what's great here, though, by the way, is it really kind of gets directly at techno-solutionism, is this assumption that math is always going to make things more objective. So uh, validation doesn't always have to be a mathematical exercise. Um, it can be uh, qualitative, it can be a form of mixed methods. And um, subject matter experts are often, so there's kind of this notion too that everybody, that everybody except the people building the tools are incredibly subjective, right? Like, oh, there's so much sub subjectivity. But subjectivity in and of itself is not a problem. You are not trying to get rid of subjectivity you're trying to make sure that the subjectivity in, in the sense of experts, so you want experts' subjectivity, you want their expertise, to, uh, and by the way, this is demonstrated and validated expertise rather than some kind of um, pseudoscientific uh, approach um, to help you identify uh, uh, methods that you can actually compare against ground truth. And there's the problem, right, is that we very often do not have ground truth. So how do we, and because we don't have ground truth for things like uh, criminality, because it's a construct that's not really measurable, how can we, uh, how can we identify uh, alternate approaches? And that's really where the interdisciplinarity comes in. It's not so much to um, build a validation that says this is this is um, this is right, this is wrong, but to expand our understanding uh, our standing of, of context and work, uh, you know, collaboratively to uh, to find other other measurement mechanisms. So finally, we are slowly but surely getting to an end. Uh, let's briefly discuss the democratization of AI. Uh, according to a 2020 paper on AI democratization, AI is increasingly being shaped by a few actors, and these actors are mostly affiliated uh, with uh, either large technology firms or elite universities. These findings are consistent with uh, the emphasis that uh, access to compute is uh, playing a major role in the divergence. And I would like you to reflect on the following questions uh, we have prepared. Um, are we observing an increased concentration of AI research among a few actors since deep learning's rise? And uh, what will be the most likely consequences of such a concentration, if there is any, according to your opinion? It's a really interesting question. And I, I mean, I think it's possible. On one hand, you have... Um, uh, everybody is talking about AI, right? Like a uh, new language models comes out and everybody is showing their version online of what they use chat GPT for. But that of course is not really research. It's just kind of um, a lot of like, look what I did, <laughs> but not really a systematic approach. Um, so uh, I I think the fact that uh, that the uh, resources are housed within you know a small number of organizations or, and they're the only people who can afford to do that is definitely um, considered to be uh, the case. 
the U.S. government has, out of the White House, has something called the National AI Research Resource Task Force, which is designed to try and um, uh, reduce this problem or manage the problem and find mechanisms for uh, smaller entities, uh, not as well resourced entities, to have access to those same compute power. Um, I think that the the future, uh, certainly in, in trustworthy and responsible AI, the future is has to be collaborative and, in, and in interdisciplinary. So if we can't find a way to um, to open up those uh, kind of doors, we're really going to exacerbate the problem. So I don't know what the um, what the future will be, but I certainly am hopeful that uh, we can find a way uh, to make sure that these these kinds of processes and resources are available to everyone. So just to summarize it, um, really final question, and you uh, you open it for a bit, for a bit. But um, what can the regulators and the public do to tackle this issue? Can we say that there is some kind of approach which uh, we all should somehow focus on? Yeah, I think um, so. I'm I'm a social scientist. So I'm going to lean heavy on on social science approaches. I think. Um, Perceiving AI systems as bigger than uh, computation is incredibly important, um, that we have got to stop thinking, again, this doesn't diminish the importance of computational approaches or mean that they should go away. I think we just need to expand beyond them. So I think um, making sure that, uh, that people are thinking of how to educate the next generation, not so much in computational approaches that now everybody should just become a, a, a computer scientist, but now um, how do we leverage social scientists within this who are more likely to bring qualitative skills um, and contextual skills to the challenge and find ways to leverage that expertise, I think is incredibly important. Um, and then also, uh, so that's like a, a word about that, that connects to interdisciplinarity, but even bigger than that is also finding ways to bring in um, the rest of the public, you know, to give them uh, a, a, a mechanism to provide feedback about about the systems they use every day and whether they are impact, impacting. That's something that we're hoping to um, carry out in an experimental way and an evaluation way here at NIST um, in the future. So we'll find out. Um, <laughs> we'll all find out together. Thank you so much. Very, ho very hopefully uh, we will. Thank you to you. Thank you for your amazing answers. Thank you for going through that with us uh, about the, the social technical approach. And I especially like this comparison of AI bias to the viruses all around <laughs> us. And uh, not all of us will make us, make us sick, as you said, but uh, it is quite important to, to figure out which one will. And that connects to another point you made about this like subjectivity, which can be reasonable if not necessary part of identifying methods which identify ground truths, uh, which is uh, also a big part of the discussion. So uh, that was Rewash Words on AI bias. Thank you for being here with us and sharing uh, your, your work and knowledge. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Carolina. Thanks so much. It was an absolute pleasure. AI development 
is not contrary to popular belief, just the Silicon Valley and the tech hubs popping up across the global north. Instead, the AI supply chains span across the globe with the global south pulling more than its own weight. The AI industry is yet to grapple with the raging inequity in its production pipeline and go beyond the so-called participation washing, whereby the mere fact that someone has participated in a project lends it moral legitimacy. To discuss AI bias and the role of the Global South in AI development, we have invited a stellar scholar, Chinasati Okolo. She's a PhD student in the Department of Computer Science at Cornell University, and her research focuses on the perception of AI by frontline healthcare workers in rural India. Hi, Chinasa, and welcome to the show. Hi, happy to be here. Thank you for the invite. So let's start and, and take a step back, maybe, and, and start with, you know, what is AI, what is machine learning, and, and describe AI bias to an ordinary person. Imagine I'm just a random person, you know, I know very little about AI. Heard thing or two um, about the chat GP3, you know, it's it's everywhere now. But what is AI bias? Is it is it something, you know, um, that we talk about when we deploy the model, or is it something inherent to the way it's produced, how AI is developed? Yes, I'll actually say it's a mix of both. Um, to me, AI bias involves many components. I'll summarize it as basically saying it's, you know, the results or outputs from a system or AI system in particular that discriminates or exclude certain groups of people, objects, or items. Um, in general, um, AI bias affects AI systems in a variety of ways, and it can be encoded, you know, in the model, as you kind of mentioned beforehand, um, also from the way like data is selected to be trained into the model. Um, also how the you know machine learning models are tuned from their respective parameters, and then also how the uh, models are deployed um, in practice. And so um, when, I, when I looked you up, um, you had this approach to examine, uh, to, to the investigating um, AI bias, which is called FATE, um, and it's fairness, accountability, transparency, and ethics. And, and the thing I'm really interested in is fairness, because the way you describe AI bias, it, it lends or it tends to to imply that it's discriminatory in some regard, right? So how, how do you um, describe or how do you understand fairness in AI bias? Yeah, so um, actually my research nowadays focuses a bit more on explainability, which kind of goes into the tra um, the transparency part within FATE. But honestly, all of these tie in very much together. So um, I'll just provide a, um, more of the scope into transparency and so, or just explainability as a whole. And so we see it as a set of methods and processes that are designed and implemented to improve how humans understand predictions produced from AI models. For example, um, if you're curious to ask how a model is classifying X-ray images of chest scans um, as pneumonia or any kind of other disease like tuberculosis, explainable AI methods, also known as XAI, um, like SHAP or LIME, um, they can cover the image um, to highlight specific features such as pixels um, of the X-ray scans that contribute to the respective diagnosis of tuberculosis or pneumonia or et cetera. And so um, for my research, I currently leverage methods such as prototyping and ethnography, basically um, understanding how people interact with different systems um, to understand how explainable AI can be, des can be designed for users with low levels of AI knowledge and technical literacy. And so going back into the fairness part, basically, um, I think explainability is a big part of it, just so you can understand, you know, how, you know, models are treating certain groups of people um, in different ways. And this is really the, I would say, the main goal of fairness to understand, you know, what are the differences in these aspects and explainability kind of goes into how can they be rectified. So. In a paper, you have co-authored The Limits of Global Inclusion in AI Development, 
uh, you make an appealing argument claiming that very little research on AI and ML is published in countries of the global south. To cite from it a little bit, uh, more specifically, Vietnam, the highest placing country of these groups, comes in the 27th place. Of the top 10 institutions by publication index, eight out of 10 were based in the United States, including American tech giants like Google, Microsoft, and Facebook. End of citation. Uh, perhaps a far-fetched idea, but it really does seem like the development of AI models follows the neocolonial tradition. Technology and tools developed in and by the global north while using the resources of the global south. In your research, you focus primarily on the African continent while also studying how frontline healthcare workers in rural India perceive and value artificial intelligence. Do you see the same neocolonial pattern of technology development and how do you counter the argument that AI is becoming increasingly available to the public? For instance, that there are these fears that small terrorist cells could leverage AI in the attacks. Maybe to follow on that, uh, why cannot African AI and ML researchers, even to only a limited extent, produce high-quality AI tools, models, or research, or anything anything as such? Yeah, thanks for that question. And so just to start off on the, you know, topic about the current neocolonial practices, I would say our work in the limits paper definitely speaks to these current practices of AI development mirroring colonial extraction and exploitation. And this is something that I presently see from, you know, precious minerals mined in places such as Congo, Rwanda, and Tanzania, excuse me, that are used to develop computer chips, used in devices popular to AI machine learning development, like GPUs. And current practices like data labeling, which is a tedious and time-consuming task, is often relegated to workers in low-resource domains, such as the Global South. And so when we go into the democratization of AI, um, I definitely agree with the argument that AI is becoming increasingly available to the public, but there's still a lack of democratization of these practices, meaning that equitable equitable access to data, uh, compute power to run and train these models, and AI talent, you know, such as researchers or developers, is still lacking. And in terms of, you know, the AI for terrorism, that's definitely a possibility. I have not done research um, in that area, so I can't speak much to that. And so um, when we go into the last comment that focuses on, you know, the state of African um, AI and machine learning development, I definitely say it's a bit of an overstatement to say that, you know, African AI machine learning researchers cannot produce high quality AI tools, models, and research. Um, My research, especially within the paper mentioned, uh, the limits paper, and also a recent book chapter that I know we'll talk about a bit later, um, that highlights the growing African AI system within, um, you know, from grassroots organizations such as Nasakane NLP, uh, Deep Learning Ndaba, and Data Science Nigeria. Um, Also, they're very popular and strong research labs at universities in Uganda, um, South Africa, and Egypt. And also, uh, we recently had a very big acquisition um, of Incident AI. Um, This was almost, uh, I would say, like a $700 million acquisition of this company. Um, And so this leads the way for African AI. Um, And additionally, uh, my previous comment about the lack of democratization of AI and the fact that, you know, these colonial practices have still hampered um, development in many regions in the global south, they all play a factor into Africa's limited, quote unquote, um, AI development capacity. Um, however, um, from the initiatives and organizations I mentioned, I definitely see much potential for the rapid growth um, of the African AI ecosystem. Just to, to sort of adapt onto it, um, how, how much do you think the infrastructure plays a role in, in how AI is being developed in, in these in these regions of the world because you know it's pretty easy to do it in the west where you have you know you have universities you have labs 
then and I and I honestly don't know how it is, right? So you, so you did the research, yeah. but um, would you say that infrastructure plays a major role in in the level the research can have in that particular? Oh region? yeah, definitely. As you see nowadays, you know the large language models (LLMs) are very you know popular, and it takes a lot of you know compute power and it's electricity um, associated with having the necessary equipment like GPUs to run these. Um, and so even if you're not training, you know, um, a large language model or any kind of large model, you still need to have these resources, which can be prohibitive um, to universities that don't have the respective um, budget to allocate for these resources. And then also um, just in general, um, in this book chapter that I mentioned, we also point out like Africa has significantly higher data prices on average compared to, you know, even develop, um, developed quote-unquote countries. And so this is also like a big factor that comes into play. I think one thing that um, in terms of infrastructure is that, um, you know, as just learning or just the internet has become, it can reach basically everywhere. I think we've seen that the training of AI researchers and scholars has become a little bit democratized because honestly, you can take classes online and and you know different kind of courses and stuff and self-teach um again it is important to get that you know knowledge based like in a formal setting as well but you know i think that has kind of branched the gap a little bit in terms of you know development as well and so um, i would like to continue this line of, of neocolonialism a little bit and the, the, the extraction practices when we talk about neocolonialism we talk about a disproportionate division of power between the north and the south and so arguably this power also includes cultural and economic hegemony of the west so what i'm getting is is that there is this um, in these emerging digital industries they are very highly motivated by a strong economic incentive so we see this for example in, in social media industry right so there is this uh, Max Fisher's new book, um, The Chaos Machine, and, and he's, he talks about um, YouTube and the recommender system um, of YouTube. And he, he says, well, we look at the system and we see that it's driven mostly by one thing, and that's you know incre to increase the watch time per user. Facebook and Google, very similar story. So they care about ads, they care about impressions, and so on and so on. And so overall, it seems that the underlying technology um, that is being developed, um, it, it's done with only one sole purpose in mind, and, and that's it's the growth, immense growth, and you know it's it's continuous growth. It translates into values such as boosting performance, accuracy, optimization, and so on and so on. And so we really we rarely see the largest uh, tech developers. Um, and tech gurus talk about fairness. Besides, it can have completely different meanings in different contexts. So you focus on Global South, um, you focus on India now, um, and how does this cultural and economic hegemony of the West, including, you know, part on capitalism, which is something a lot of people don't want to talk about, but how does it influence the development of AI? And could you give us some examples maybe of how, you know, the, these economic incentives influence? And so we talked about infrastructure a little bit, but what are the other incentives that, you know, how do you develop an AI model? Do we focus only on optimization and how accurate it is? Or do we include some, for example, public values in it? Yeah, I definitely think, you know, public values um, are very much needed in terms of incorporating them into AI development. Um, I know I think we have questions later on that discuss more. And so I'll probably bring that up a bit later. Um, but going more so, um, <clears throat> excuse me, into the question about the cultural and you know, economic values of the West and how they influence the development of AI, I would say that we see more broadly how capitalism influences technology development um, as systems are often built towards extracting the most value from users, like you just referenced. So in the case you know, of speech recognition systems like Alexa, Siri, 
and Google Assistant, these systems were only first built with speakers of Western languages like English, French, and Spanish in mind. And honestly, we could probably say that these users are more likely to afford to buy products with these systems embedded in them. And so only recently have services like Google Translate uh, started to branch to languages such as Quechua, which is spoken um, in South America and Latin America, um, Lingala, which is spoken in Africa, and also Tree, which is spoken um, around Ghana, which is also in Africa. And these languages, these three languages actually have more speakers than Danish, Dutch, Finnish, Greek, and Swedish combined. And so you can kind of see like there's a very broad disparity also just to give you the numbers and so the first three languages i mentioned have about 66 million speakers and the last five languages i mentioned have only 56.2 um speakers and so you can kind of see you know that and i sorry i would honestly say that um i doubt that the languages like quechua lingala, lingala and tweet um actually have um you know uh are embedded into like Alexa, Siri, or Google Assistant. Right now, to my knowledge, they're only relegated to Google Translate. Um, and so you can still see that there's a very big disconnect. And also, um, I think a good thing about this is that there has been a lot of grassroots initiatives. Um, you know, for speakers of these underrepresented languages, um, despite the very large numbers, you know, of speakers in these languages, to actually develop these systems for themselves. And so I've seen a lot of these grassroots initiatives across the African continent and also, you know, within India and Latin America as well. Um, and so, uh, yeah. To continue on, on that note, um, inequality in AI development involves both the concentration of profits and danger of ignoring the context in which AI is applied. And as for the former, you mentioned in your article, Amazon's crowdsourcing website, Mechanical Turk, to hire people to perform on-demand tasks. And I was really intrigued by the whole idea that you sort of built in your paper. So I went online and I tried it, um, and um, I tried completing one of the tasks, um, and it was uh, product reviews. So I did it for a few minutes, and the calculation was that if I kept performing the task at the same speed for an hour, I would make roughly $3. And, and so, so it, it's really ridiculous how much you're paid for something that is so crucial to, to the development of AI, right? And so what, what tasks, um, what other tasks or what tasks uh, related to AI development do workers perform in, in Global South? Is it just data labeling or is it also other things that they do? Yeah, honestly, um, from my knowledge, it's mostly relegated to data labeling. There could be some other practices in terms of actually um, curating or cleaning the data, but I think a lot of this is left to the researchers themselves, um, just so they can, you know, figure out um, if, you know, people maybe erroneously label things, um, and just so, you know, um, they do the final steps in terms, the researchers themselves do the final steps in terms of preparing the data for actually training, um, being trained in the models, and so, but overall, um, I would say that, you know, the data laborers are provided very specific instructions. But, you know, even in the U.S. context, or just a more developed context, quote unquote, um, we see that this, the, the wage is very scarce. And honestly, that's the reason why, you know, this, you know, this kind of labor has been delegated to regions in the global south, because it's often seen as a living wage, um, despite this work being very tedious. And um, I know there was something brought up in terms of thinking about how data labelers from the global south could potentially be contributing to systems that um, could further their own exploitation. And I think this is a, is a very big concern. Um, honestly, I haven't really seen um, 
any very vivid examples um, of this from my knowledge. I know that facial recognition systems um, have been adopted by many, not many, but a few African countries, but these systems mostly come from China. Um, and I'm not really sure how, um, if the data labeling was relegated to countries in the global south, but I could assume so just given, you know, the prior context um, of this work. And so I would say that also um, in terms of the potential disconnects, in terms of the artifacts that workers produce, um, I have not personally engaged in data labeling for a large scale system. I've done it for um, work that I did early in my PhD um, in terms of labeling for videos for a computer vision system. But, um, you know, despite the drawbacks in journal, data labeling has been seen as a potentially viable way of from, for some workers in the global south to become upperly mobile. And, you know, this question in general actually reminds me of a really interesting article that I read by 52, uh, which is a publication um, in India. And they basically talked about data, lab, uh, data workers in India. And then one of them actually took a lot of pride. Um, one of the workers interviewed took a lot of pride in her work, uh, you know, contributing to labeling CT scans. And basically she was saying something like, oh, you know, she feels like she's a part of the technology um, that she developed. And um, even though, you know, it's not, she can't really see the end goal, uh, she says that to be part of the development makes her pretty happy. Um, so obviously that, you know, even though this is just one perspective, um, you know, there is some benefits to data labeling, but again, a lot of problems as well. Uh, in a quote uh, from the already mentioned paper, uh, you talk about othering and various perspectives data sets may take. To quote for it, the process of data collection can contribute to an othering of the subject and some inaccurate or harmful beliefs. Even if data come from somewhere in the global south, they are often from the perspective of an outsider. End of citation. Could you please explain what othering means in the context of AI development? What does it mean in practice? How can data, a seemingly natural scientific artifact, and for many developers, a true representation of reality, take perspectives? Great. So to discuss uh, the first part in terms of othering, honestly, I just see this as a lack of inclusion, you know, also what we would just call simply straight up exclusion. And so othering basically, um, involves, you know, no contribution of values, perspectives, or beliefs um, of, ex of these excluded people and the design, development, and deployment of these systems. And then when we move on to data, you know, um, the question about data in terms of, you know, the values encoded in it as well, you know, overall, data is a very tangible object, despite, you know, you know it being encoded in your machines, which kind of, you're not able to specifically touch them, for example. But um, while many people believe that technical systems and scientific artifacts don't have values, humans actually decide how to, how to shape the intentions of these systems. And whether you purposely or unintentionally choose to exclude data from certain populations, groups, or subjects, you know, when you develop these AI systems that are meant for general use, um, you actually create a representation of reality that is quite limited and unrepresentative of society. In the article, uh, Making AI Explainable in the Global South, a systematic review, you mentioned the lack of data equity in the Global South. In practice, it means that this is much more difficult for researchers to collect, curate, and analyze data for training in the Global South than in the Global North. What problems does this represent? What are the implications of data equity? And how does this westernized model of AI development perpetuate certain AI biases and inequalities? 
Yeah, so thinking about the problems and the implications of data equity, I would say just overall, um, we see that there is a general lack of inclusion in the global AI scene, where data is often collected from multiple sources to contribute to data sets that are used to train, you know, very large models used in computer vision, NLP, and, and other, uh, other aspects. And just in general, um, I would say that these problems kind of stem from some of the issues that we discussed earlier in terms of, you know, the lack of infrastructure, because, you know, once you collect the data, you actually have need to have somewhere to store it. Um, and so, you know, those all play a role into this. And so just in general, I think that when it comes to this, these problems of implications of data equity, um, it actually affects the researchers in the global south like regions themselves, because they actually struggle um, to build tools that are relevant to, to address their own local problems. And so we see that's kind of a twofold issue where we see a lack of inclusion um, of, a, of these global soft researchers on a global scale and then also an inability or, you know, a, a lesser ability to address issues that are more relevant to them. And then when we go into the perpetuation of AI biases and inequalities, um, we see that, you know, if these tools um, from Western researchers are actually applied for use in the global south or other underrepresented contexts, you know, the users that are based in these regions could not benefit from any purported benefits or they could actually be harmed by these systems. Um, as we've seen a lot in the United States context where facial recognition is falsely, you know, leading to the arrest um, of underrepresented people, especially black um, men and women, um, black men um, more often um, in this case. And so th these are very real concerns um, in the global South as well. I'm I'm really intrigued by by what you mentioned mentioned earlier is that when I, when we deploy AI that is trained on one data set to a completely different context the whole paradigm just shifts and in your, one of your papers uh, you mentioned that factors such as literacy cultures values norm and community needs are crucial in designing adaptable AI tools and that this is something that you just talked about but I would um, try to, to shift the balance a little bit and ask you, you know, what can AI developers do to overcome this, to understand the local context when they are so disconnected from how AI is developed in the very first place, right? They don't understand the context in which it's the data is labeled and how, what can they do? What, what can we do to make global, to, to make um, the development of AI more globally inclusive? Yeah, so overall, I would say there are a lot of different ways, but mostly these focus on human-centered methods. And so um, to start off, um, conducting user studies is actually a very big part of human-centered work. And so I think that, I believe that, you know, this method could first, you know, help AI practitioners understand the benefits and drawbacks of their models and systems and actually help them understand the local context without actually, you know, having to spend a lot of time immersed in these domains. And basically what I mean is that if you interview users um, and, you know, conduct um, studies with users using your products, you can get their local perspectives. And then also I would say this goes into my second point of building very diverse teams, because honestly the average technologist doesn't have the training um, to do user studies unless, you know, they, they have someone who trains them or they, you know, learn it along the way, kind of like how I did. And so in terms of the importance of building interdisciplinary teams, um, a lot of my work in general stresses this. Um, basically, like you need to include researchers with training in social sciences, such as anthropology and sociology. And personally, like as a technologist myself, um, I've benefited from being trained in qualitative methods and um, actively incorporating them in my work and also including people who have this domain knowledge as well. And so 
Um, finally, I think the most important part um, of the step in terms of improving, you know, how these how cultural factors or just other uh, factors of societies are incorporated into, um, you know, the develop AI development is basically by promoting and actively practicing participatory methods. So basically, this just means, you know, you want to include communities in the design, development, and integration or deployment um, of these AI tools and systems. And so they should be um, basically included in every step um, of development. Maybe more so the actual model building. Um, that's one place where I think, you know, uh, there can be limited input, but aside from that, you should have that participatory involvement um, along the value chain of these systems. We are slowly but surely getting to an end of this interview with our wonderful guest. So finally, let us briefly discuss politics and ideology. In your article, you briefly mentioned the Chinese tech threat to Africa. Uh, it is a fact that African countries do not have the necessary legal and practical safeguards. For example, there are these very few digital policies and low digital literacy to protect their citizens against tech giants such as China with their deployment of surveillance system and data sharing agreements with China, etc. How do you think Chinese ideology and tech authoritarianism influenced the way AI is developed? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, excuse me. Um, and so to be very transparent, I would say that my main contribution to the book chapter focused on the first third of it, where we analyze the major factors hindering AI development within the African continent and also analyze the AI startup ecosystem to understand what areas of AI development are being prioritized. And so I did have input on the whole chapter, um, but um, as a non-expert on Chinese studies, I'll aim to answer this question a bit more broadly. And so... We've seen that, you know, bans of software from Chinese companies like Huawei and TikTok in the United States and other places in the West, um, have, they have shown the potential um, of harms of Chinese technology. Um, and also, um, just in terms of China becoming a common partner for African infrastructure initiatives have also come with their own problems, uh, basically loading you know, African countries with debt, um, but also still, I guess, on the positive side, advancing the infrastructure development in this region. And then again, we've also seen a lot of concerns, you know, from Chinese spying um, in the African Union headquarters, which is not to be understated. But also, you know, there are initiatives from U.S. corporations like Google, Meta, and Microsoft to distribute free internet, install subsea cables, establish data centers. Um, and, and these are also not without scrutiny, as significant data on African users is collected in this process. And so... I would say overall, um, in my opinion, the AI race between the U.S. and China kind of exacerbates, you know, this build fast, break things ideology. And this is uh, a quote that we've seen a lot of times to describe technical development in the West. And so when we, um, you know, see things being built fast, it often, it often comes with a neglect of responsibility of the potential and sometimes the realized harms of AI. And so, you know, as AI continues to permeate borders and as, you know, the AI race between the U.S. and China exacerbates, we'll definitely see a lot of these issues continue to rise with the harms of AI, you know, impacting different populations. But, um, however, I would say that, you know, this kind of rivalry between the U.S. and China um, often overshadows the local efforts being done. Um, and, you know, I've mentioned a lot of these earlier in the interview, And so I think that, you know, the emergence of these grassroots efforts to develop AI systems, to collect data sets, and to, you know, um, build a new generation of AI developers and researchers on the, on the African continent, and also throughout the global south, 
will be a big part of fostering the AI community uh, within Africa. And so another issue or is another point that I've stressed a lot in my research is actually that there, it's really a, you know, a big, there's a big responsibility on African governments throughout the continent to support local startup ecosystems. And I think that this can have a factor you know, on reducing the reliance on foreign tech, especially from China and the US. And so hopefully, you know, as, you know, AI developers and AI startups increase, you know, there'll be a less of a reliance on foreign tech. And this could also, you know, reduce concerns that are associated with, you know, foreign infiltration or spying, um, as we've seen beforehand. And so additionally, um, there have been countries like Kenya, Rwanda, and South Africa um, that have enacted data protection legislation. And I'm actually currently working with the African Union to develop a continental strategy on AI. And we hope that this will translate into the formation of more robust um, AI policy around the continent. And initiatives like this will actually be very important to, um, to Africa's AI development. And then also, you know, I would say uh, governing, you know, how AI is used in many contexts. And again, um, this will, you know, definitely help with reducing a lot, of, a lot of the concerns that we see with AI development in general. It's quite indisputable that technology and its development is often, if not always, uh, shaped by ideology and different kind of interests. Um, as we could hear in, uh, uh, in this interview, AI and machine learning researchers from global south, uh, such as African countries, can produce high-tech quality AI tools, models or research when in the right conditions, for example, in the institutions such as good universities and they are in the regions. However, the gap is real and there is a general lack of inclusion in the AI scene and lack of data equity, which connects to struggles and inability to address relevant issues for local actors relating infrastructure, culture and overall development. Finally, there is this whole new chapter for discussion when it comes to technology and its role in the IR, how the power play of world powers and great powers try to shape their interests using technology and the workers, people in the field to focus on their interest. So, uh, Chinasati Okolo, thank you for being here and sharing your knowledge with us. Good luck with your further research and we are looking forward to any new updates you ha we will have. Yeah, thank you again for the invitation. <laughs>